This is from John 4. Hang with me. John 4, 27 through 42. God's word says this. I might need these. Hang on, y'all. It wasn't going to work. <laughs> At that moment, his disciples returned and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman. Yet none of them dared ask him why or what they were discussing. All at once, the woman left her water jar and ran off to her village and told everyone, come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I've ever done. He could be the one we've been waiting for. Hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. Then the disciples began to insist that Jesus eat some of the food they brought back with them, saying, teacher, you must eat something. But Jesus told them, I have eaten a meal you don't know about. Puzzled by this, the disciples began to discuss it among themselves. Did someone already bring him food? To clarify, Jesus spoke up and he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion. As the crowds emerged from the village, Jesus said to his disciples, why would you say the harvest is another four months away? Look at all these people coming. Now is the harvest time. Their hearts are like vast fields of ripened grain, ready for a harvest. Everyone who reaps these souls for eternal life will receive a reward. Both those who plant spiritual seeds and those who reap the spiritual harvest will celebrate together with great joy. And this confirms the saying, one sows the seed and another reaps the harvest. I have sent you out to harvest a field that you haven't planted where many others have labored long and hard before you. And now you are privileged to profit from their labors and reap the harvest. Many from the Samaritan village became believers in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Then they begged Jesus to stay with them. So he stayed there for two days, resulting in many more coming to faith in him because of his message. The Samaritans said to the woman, now we've heard him ourselves. We no longer believe just because of what you told us, but we're convinced that he really is the true savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Everybody in Benton, good morning. Did you hear him from way down there? Yeah. Uh, happy first Sunday of Advent. Well, five years ago, I underwent a conversion experience, a life-changing conversion experience that, quite frankly, I've been hesitant to tell you about. Because I know this is going to be a big surprise to a lot of you, but uh, five years ago, just something really dramatic happened in my life, and uh, I became a different person as a result. You see, for much of my life, I turned my nose up as, at this substance. I said people who drank it didn't know what they were doing. But five years ago, friends, I became a zealous coffee drinker. <laughs> I know for some of you say, wait a minute, Ron, you've always talked about your tea. I know, I still like occasionally to drink tea, but I got to say my go-to in the morning now is coffee. And uh, it, uh, let me tell you about my story, my conversion story, okay? 
for most of my life, a half century, I turned my nose up at it. I thought it smelled good. In fact, I would tell people, I love the aroma. Isn't there something, even if you're not a coffee drinker, doesn't it just smell good to be, you know, the aroma of coffee wafting through the house? My mom was a coffee drinker. My, my in-laws were. And when we'd go home to visit, and, and the first thing you'd smell in the morning is Folgers in the cup. And it's, oh, it was so good, but I just thought it was horrible and uh, didn't want anything to do with it. And so, um, and I, I was not shy about telling people about that either. Um, and then my, one day my son tells me, Dad, now you gotta understand, my wife didn't drink coffee either. We never had the stuff in our home, okay? So my kids weren't around it. They weren't exposed to it. But my son comes home and he says, Dad, he, he just got back from Costa Rica. He was at Asbury Seminary at the time, and Asbury has this partnership with a school there, and he took a course, a three-week course there. He says, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. I got a hold of the good stuff. Costa Rican coffee. And, oh, it's so good. I said, oh, yeah, 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 right, right. He said, no, 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 Dad, you got to give it a try. And so he gets me, well, he gives me a cup, and I pour in the creamer, and I pour in the, the honey, and it was not bad. I thought, okay. And then it wasn't complete, though. He took me to the high church, to the high priest, otherwise known as a barista, at the high church of Red Banner, the finest coffee shop in the region. And the owner graciously stayed for an hour after work that day and had me try all these different kinds of things and I was hooked. And uh, in fact, after a while, I stopped putting in the creamer. I stopped putting in the honey. I drink it black. I think I've got some hair growing in my chest. No, but it's good. And I gotta say something about this, this, this uh, coffee. Yeah, I love the good stuff. I still think Folgers is awful. But the good stuff, now that's a whole different story. I'm having a little fun with it. But my, my whole sort of approach to coffee changed when my son talked to me about it and got me to try it. Imagine where this message might be going. <laughs> we started a series four weeks ago called Bless. And um, we're talking about loving our neighbors and changing the world. And friends, we believe that the greatest way to love our neighbors, the, the, the way that the world changes is knowing Jesus. That this season that we're celebrating and that is being celebrated all around the world is the greatest season because the greatest gift was given at this season. If we really believe that Christmas is the greatest gift, if we really believe that Jesus has always said that he is, then the best thing we could ever do for anybody is introduce them to Jesus. And we said it kind of looks like this. Uh, you begin with prayer. Uh, we spell out bless. Begins with prayer. Prayer opens people's hearts. Prayer changes people's hearts. Prayer touches people. And then listen. Learn to listen well. Don't just be concerned about talking first. No, listen to what your friends, those who don't know Jesus, be a good listener. Love them well. When you listen well, you love well. And then we talked about eating with other people and just sharing life, sharing um, uh, time together, and then serving. Now, I would say that, that probably none of those things make you really uncomfortable. Because, you know what I mean, we all, we, we can pray, we, we all know we need to listen better, and we all eat at least three times a day, and, and serving, yeah, that, there's something good that really feels about serving, but, you, but friends, you can't self, spell blessed with only one S. There's another part to the story. 
Um, and it's, 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 Paul says it pretty well in, in Romans chapter 10. Let me turn there. He says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have the chance to bring good news. We're not talking about bringing good arguments or good logic. We're talking about bringing good news. Now, I know this part, speaking about Jesus and telling our story is the one part that scares the living daylights out of most Christians. It makes us very uncomfortable. Uh, and maybe because of that, somewhere along the line, you just decided, yeah, that's not for me. I'm just going to woo them with my life. You know, the old St. Francis uh, line, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Only two problems with that. There's no evidence whatsoever that Francis of Assisi ever said it. There's no evidence. Secondly, because he was a magnificent preacher. Secondly, I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian about 50 years now, almost. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, Ron, your life is so remarkable. You are so amazing. Tell me your secrets. Now, some of you out there, you're good enough. Maybe that's happened, okay? Most of us, it doesn't happen that way. We have to speak. I didn't get converted to coffee until my son spoke and got me to, to try it. Psalmist said something similar, taste and see that the Lord is good. Somebody has to share that. So I want to talk about our stories today. I want to talk about how it has to translate to words at some point, or words in our stories. In fact, we're going to look at a story in John chapter 4. You heard a part of it because it's, it's a long story. We won't have time to look at all the detail. It's, it's really long and rich. Um, story, if you're familiar with John's gospel, it's the woman at the well, Samaritan woman. And here we see the power of words and stories. And, and, and here we see that at the end of the day, it's our words and stories that help people meet Jesus. Yes, we begin with prayer. Yes, we listen. Yes, we eat with them. Yes, we serve them. And all of that is important, but at the end of the day, it's our words and our stories that help people meet Jesus. So first, what I want to do is look at the, the master. Um, this is about being everyday missionaries. There's no greater missionary than Jesus. And here, he puts on a clinic on how to reach somebody that, that didn't know him when he goes to this Samaritan village. Like I said, it's, uh, John Ford, I would encourage you, please go home and read the entire story. Um, it, it'll bless you. There's so much there. You go see how much we've left out. There's so much that's, that's so good. Um, but, but here in this, in this passage, we, we see Jesus and his disciples go into Samaria, and I'll come back to why that was so odd, so unusual. And they haven't eaten for a while, so Jesus sends the boys out on a little errand. He has them go into town to get some food, and he's there by himself, and he's at Jacob's well, a well that the ancestor Jacob built centuries before, famous spot, and still there. You can go to Jacob's well today. And he's there by himself, and he's joined by a solitary figure. And John tells us it's the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and a woman shows up. 
Now, those who were reading this or knew the story in the first century would understand, ooh, that's unusual. Why? Because uh, women, they would go and get water. They would go to the well early, but they would go in the morning early because it was cooler then. And they would go in groups. It was kind of a social thing. You'd go and you'd catch up on things. You'd talk about your kids. You'd talk about uh, your husband. Wives do that sometimes. You know, you talk about all the stuff going on in town, gossip a little bit maybe. And it was a social thing. You'd get the water and you'd walk back home and do the same thing. But you didn't go alone and you didn't go in the middle of the day. But here comes this woman. We learn later why she's coming by herself because she's probably on the receiving end of a lot of that gossip. It's got a reputation. Um, And so Jesus does something that was considered socially taboo in his day. Men were not, men did not talk to women in in public. In fact, it was considered impolite to talk to your wife in public. That was the social custom of the day. But Jesus brushes aside those taboos. And um, pick up verse 7, he goes and he talks to her. And it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And this is how he begins. Now, again, what I want to do is there's a lot here and can't point out all of it. I want to just point out a few things about Jesus, his his being an everyday missionary. Uh, He leads with weakness. He leads with, I need something from you. Not, oh, I'm here to give you something and he has something great to give her, it's, I need something from you. He's done this before. When he went to preach by the Sea of Galilee, he he needed a pulpit. He needed to get a little distance from himself and the crowd that was gathered on the shore. So he went to one of the fishermen, Simon, and said, can I borrow your boat and use it for a pulpit? Yeah. Jesus was disarming and that he could come to somebody and express a need. I, I need a drink. I'm thirsty. You know, sometimes the thing that gets in the way of us really speaking to and reaching the world around us is that we lead with our strength. One of the things we have to overcome as a church, quite frankly, is we're a strong church, big building, you know, we got a lot going on. And people will hear, though, our weakness better than they will our strengths. Would you give me a drink? I'm thirsty, I'm in need. Um, and then he goes on to say, you know, she's kind of a little surprised that he would ask it. And verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Then skip down to verse 14. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now, I want you to know something here and throughout. In fact, not just this story. Quite frankly, throughout the teachings of Jesus, he speaks in everyday, understandable language. He doesn't try to wow her with uh, his understanding of theology. He doesn't use big, complex words. It's a very simple message. And even when he needs to point her to an experience beyond her own, beyond something she's ever experienced, he uses a simple illustration right in front of him about water. Because they're there. There's Jacob's well there. And he talks about this thing that he has to offer, this gift, is living water. One of the hindrances, I think, sometimes to us sharing our faith is we think we have to be uh, really theologically astute, that we have to understand it all, that we have to be able to answer a lot of questions, and that, I think, um, deters so many people. It's the simple words and simple stories. 
John Wesley, the founder of our movement, was a brilliant man. He was fluent in six languages. He was a prolific writer. In fact, I've got a couple shelves in my library, uh, books that John Wesley, uh, things that he wrote. And early on in his ministry, he's preaching. He's at a, he's at a country parish. He's at a country, a small, small town. And he preaches this message. And he could tell it went like right over everyone's heads, you know. You can tell when sometimes people are tracking with you, and you can tell when they're like, you know, eyes are glassed over. And he said, this is not landing well. So he went back that day, kind of rewrote it, took out some of the more complex words, and, and about half of it was understood. So Wesley did something that would become a practice. He, 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 he um, knew this uh, servant girl. She worked, uh, was a maid in one of the homes of a wealthy person there. Her name was Betsy. He says, I'm going to read you my manuscript. And anything that you don't understand, you stop me. So after about the 20th time in his manuscript, stop, sir, <laughs> he was getting a little annoyed, but he listened to everything she had to say, took those complex words out, substituted them with simple words, and Wesley became a powerful preacher. But he knew that the most profound things can be said in the simplest ways. Finn, you don't have to know. It's not about how profound your knowledge is or big your words are. It's the simplicity the other thing about, about Jesus in this conversation here is, is it's, go read it, he's utterly natural. He's just kind of down to earth. Uh, I don't know, why is it that sometimes we Christians think we have to be weird? You know, just a little bit on the odd side, you know? I, I, I don't know why that is, but, but Jesus is completely natural. He's just himself in conversation. Uh, he's positive. Um, uh, he also, one, one thing here, he, he knows Samaria. He's, he has a knowledge of where he's going. If you're going to be a missionary, you kind of need the, the culture. You need to understand where you're at. And he was able to uh, relate to her because he understood things about Samaria. Um, and in the midst of this, God gives him a word. Now, Jesus relied on the leading of the Holy Spirit, just like we are to rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, he modeled what it was to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit revealed to him something about this woman. And they're having this conversation, get further along, and, and he says, um, um, go get your husband and come back. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You've answered correctly. And she gets kind of nervous. But they continue to talk. Now, he says that in a way that does not condemn her, does not beat her up. It's a word from God that what? Says, whoa, someone standing in front of me here, he doesn't know me. How did he know that? Gets her attention. And then everything is positive. I love how he's a positive witness. He doesn't use that against her. In fact, he doesn't beat her up about that. He, he says, I've got living water. I've got something you've been looking for. And all those relationships, those marriages that hasn't given you what you need, I've got something for you. It's a very positive. He's winsome. He treats her with dignity and respect. This woman who was looked down upon by everybody else in the village. And he wins her heart. Most of our failures in evangelism, friends, are failures in love. We just don't love the people we're trying to reach enough. Jesus loved this woman. And his love came through beautifully and powerfully. And the story, she's believing in him. She, she's become a convert. 
And um, we come back, and so the guys come back. You know, they went in town to get some food, so they're, they're, they're carrying the food with them. And they, they said, Rabbi, eat something. In verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Who brought Jesus lunch? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Did you get the picture? Here's the woman, we're told, she had just left at this point. She's going back to the village. And they bring this food and said, eat. And he said, I don't want to eat. And he is so filled with joy that he, he, he doesn't want to eat. Maybe some of you remember being so in love that you could hardly eat. So excited about something that you, you just can't, you can't stop. Uh, Handel, who I think produced the most anointed God-honoring piece of music in human history, the Messiah, which will be performed countless places around the world this month. Um, talks about the experience of writing. And, uh, uh, George Frederick Handel was a brilliant composer, a man of God. And this was different, though. It was like God was downloading this thing to him in his mind so fast and so furiously. He, could, he couldn't write out the music enough, he, fast enough. He, he couldn't write out the words. He's, he's, and he composes it in weeks. Normally, something of that magnitude would take a composer months to write out. But he does it in just a matter of a few short weeks. And, and he, he goes without eating. And he says, he looks back at that time and says it was the most exhilarating experience he ever had. And for Jesus, the most exhilarating experience he has had and that is, this, is seeing this heart, this woman's heart open up to him. Nothing made Jesus happier, gave him more joy than um, people coming to know him. In fact, it said in, in Hebrews, later it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Incredibly, when Jesus was on the cross, joy kept him there because he knew that going through that would mean you coming into the kingdom. Is I have food to eat that you don't know about? It's utter joy that this woman has placed her faith in him. So those are the words of Jesus. And again, um, there's been much written about Jesus' approach to this woman and what we have to learn from it. But let's, let's switch to her now. She got Jesus' words, but let's look at, look at her story. Um, we go back, let's go back, track, uh, back through the story. When Jesus says, give me a drink, this was her reaction. She said, you're, this is verse nine, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she's really taken back by this. And, and at first, her, her, she's very closed. Her, her, um, she's uh, not comfortable with this situation at all, defensive, uh, but he wins her over. Kenneth Bailey wrote a fabulous book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and he says this, I love it. He says, she, this woman caught sight of a thirsty man then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi, but she was swept off her feet by, a pro by the prophet, and she utterly adored the Messiah. Just in the span of that conversation, her heart is softened. She's won over. And then we're told this, 
verse 28. It says, then leaving her water jar, the disciples come back. And by the way, she could, she, you could tell there's this awkward kind of thing that happens. The disciples are looking at her, looking at Jesus, like men aren't supposed to talk to women in public. Why is she here? Do you want us to tell her to leave? She can tell immediately that they don't have the same posture towards her that Jesus does. It says, so, it says she left. Leaving, she left her water jar, which is a beautiful little eyewitness detail. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. This Samaritan woman, we're never given her name. You know, she becomes the first woman preacher in Christian history. Now, sometimes there's debate in, in sections of the church about whether women can preach. Um, and there's a couple verses in the Bible that some folks really are trying to honor, and someday we'll talk about those verses that seem to suggest that women cannot preach. My only, my only observation is that women do preach. She does. It's the first one. She goes back to the village and she tells everybody, come and see this man. This man told me everything about me. And she's a pretty good evangelist. We'll see later. The whole village comes out. Just amazing. And let's go, well, let's go and read that. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Then they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves or we know that this man really is the savior of the world. There's this beautiful harvest. There's this, this turning to God in, in this Samaritan village. It's utterly amazing. All because of her story. That whole piece of knowledge, we might call it a word of knowledge, telling her about her marital history, which Jesus could have never known by natural means, convinces her. Um, and her story changes the day. And it's a simple story, isn't it? So Jesus' words, her story. Now, let's, um, let's talk about us and our words and our story. Let's go to verse 38. Um, in between, the woman leaving the water jar, going back to preach, and then the Samaritans coming out of the village, coming to Jesus. Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. That takes place there. And, and he says this in verse 38, I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Now he's talking to the disciples, so he's talking to us. Notice what he says, I sent you. You know what part and parcel of definition of a disciple is, is a learner, but it's one who is sent. You and I have been sent by God into this world to be everyday missionaries. Whatever it is you do, whatever kind of occupation you have, if you're a student, if you're a, a, a laborer, you're a manager, you're what, whatever, you are sent into your world to be an everyday missionary. 
Um, and he says, I've sent you. And, and, and so that means if you and I are sent, we need to pay attention to what is happening around us and be sensitive to, is God doing something today? Does God want me to share something with somebody? Has, has a door opened to where I can just get a little word in? Again, it doesn't have to be anything profound or even pushy or forward. God provides these opportunities naturally. Let me tell you about one. I just read this book. Um, John Lennox is a a professor emeritus of mathematics at Oxford University, which means he's a very smart guy, okay? And he's written a number of of books um, about science and faith, and he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scholar. Uh, But he wrote this book, it's called Have No Fear of Being Salt and Light Even When It's Costly. It's really about how to share your faith in Jesus. I recommend it for anybody. You can read it in one sitting. It's really small. He tells this story. Um, He was in Budapest, and he had been uh, giving some lectures there, and he was making his way back to Vienna. Not Vienna, Vienna. We pronounce so many things so wrong here. I get confused. You know, like Cairo, Cairo, what is it? I don't know, I don't know anymore. Vi- Vienna, Vienna. So he's taking a train to Vienna, and um, he, he gets on the train, and he sits down, he's got a ticket in the kind of the, you know, coach, second class, whatever you want to call it. He sits down, and he said, I said, I had this odd feeling that I wasn't supposed to be sitting in that seat, you know? It's like some of you today, you, th- you know, someone's sitting in your seat at church, and you just have this kind of odd feeling about it. No, he's feeling, he's like, you know, I don't think I should be here. But so, in fact, it was so overwhelming that he pulls his ticket out, looks at it, confirms, yeah, that's, I'm in the right seat, puts it away, and he can't let go of the feeling. He still thinks he's in the wrong seat. And he's got, it's overwhelming. So he said, I, I got up and I just walked to the front of the train. And he went to the next car. The next car was a first class car, but it was old, kind of worn out, shabby looking. And, and the next one was brand newly renovated, really nice. And he's walking through and he's meaning to go right into the nice first class um, uh, car. And he says he gets to the, the, the threshold and he says, I can't move. He said, I, I became so concerned, I thought I was having a stroke. He said, I can't move. So finally, he looks behind him, there's a seat open, so he sits down. And he said, this overwhelming sense of peace whew, comes over him. Now, this is a math professor, okay? It's not someone prone to uh, uh, emotional excess. <laughs> He's sitting down, and he, and he falls asleep. Train takes off. Wakes up about 30 minutes in the journey, and there's two men talking to him. And they're in an animated conversation. And he doesn't know what language they're speaking. And he said about halfway through the conversation, they switch over to French. Well, he's, John Lennox is British, but, but he knows French. And so he hears them and he understands what they're saying. And so um, he learns that one of them is a, a lawyer at The Hague, big time lawyer. One of them's an ambassador. And they're having this conversation. They look out the window and they pass a cemetery and they see lots of crosses. They say, huh, I didn't know there were any Christians in this country. And John Lennox speaks up. He said, oh, yes, actually, this, this country has a very rich uh, heritage of Christian faith. 
I said, oh, how would you, you know, and then he introduces himself. He's a professor at Oxford, mathematics, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and the subject, religion then con- continues. And, and, and they share that, you know, they've always been baffled by religion and find that it's, it's, it's so harsh and legalistic. And, and he said, well, you know, he says, I, I consider myself a follower of, of Jesus, and I don't consider myself religious, though. And they were stunned. They said, wait a minute. You're a professor at Oxford, and you believe in all that superstitious stuff? Seriously, you can't be a Christian. He said, no, no, I am. And, and he went on to explain, he pulls out a napkin and he, he writes out this kind of drawing about religion. It's all about what you do and earning and, and being good enough and, and um, work hard enough. And maybe if you do all of that, God will smile on you and, and uh, accept you. He said, no, really, Christianity is just the opposite. You're accepted from the first step. You're accepted at the beginning. It's something called grace and he explains grace to them. And, and these, these men, are floored by this message. And then they tell him the story. They said that day, they were driving, and the car broke down right in front of the train station. And, and they said, um, he says, we don't travel by train. We haven't been on one for years. Then we meet you on the train and have a conversation of a kind we've never experienced, not even in the leading universities in the world that we've attended. How do you account for that? Very simple. I responded, I think there's such a thing as divine guidance, and this is an example of it. Now he says, I don't know what became of the guys. He goes, I, I lost touch with them. But that day, he planted some seeds. Now, that was a rather dramatic example of God's guidance. It doesn't always happen that way. I, I don't have a story that's equivalent to that. But I have found myself in places, and I have been in opportunities where it's like, oh, there's something, there's an opportunity here for me to share a word. And here's the deal. If you all begin with prayer, if you'll find yourself praying for people in your world, folks you work with, maybe students, fellow students, classmates, neighbors, family, and you start praying for them, that God will soften their heart, God would find a way in, and then you really become a good listener, you're more about hearing their story. And if you hang out with them, eat with them, serve them, we do all that kind of stuff, there'll be the opportunity eventually to tell your story. It'll just happen. and happen naturally. Um, but it's, it's that that puts people across the line. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa what, do, what, what do I say? Again, that had to be profound. All this woman knew. Her, she, had a, she had a very short sermon. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. I think he's the Messiah. Maybe your story is, man, I had, I had such anxiety, and I still battle it now and then, but God gave me peace. Or I had an addiction, and God freed me from my addiction. Or I never felt loved in my whole life. And now I, I feel loved. You know, I never, I never had a purpose. I, I thought it was all about making money and jobs, and I did all that, and, and then... I found purpose in Jesus. It's just your story. Whatever that story is. The most popular song in Christian history is John Newton telling us his story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a slave trader. Pretty wretched. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We love that song because it's, it's a story. 
a story of transformation. You've got a story. And there are folks who live around you, work around you, and related to you, who would really love to hear your story. Um, and I, it all begins with prayer. And so as Brett has said over the course of this series, uh, for the next year, we want to lean into this. We want to, we're not like we're going to talk about it every week, but we're going to be coming back to this on a regular basis. And how is it that we as a community can um, bless our neighbors? And again, the greatest blessing we can be to the world is share Jesus with them. And, and um, in, in January, we always start the year, if you're new to LaCroix, we start the year with 21 days where we pray and fast. And we ask God for awakening. We ask God to move in our midst. And we're, and we're going to begin with prayer. And this, this 21 days of prayer and fasting is going to be focused especially on praying for those people in our lives who need to know Jesus. It's all going to start there. And we just think that God is going to do some incredible things through that. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the remarkable story of this woman Jesus went to her. He said he had to go through Samaria because your spirit led him there. Lord, I pray that as we go through our week and go about our lives, that we'll be aware that we've been sent and that we'll see each and every opportunity and day as a, uh, a missionary opportunity to be a witness for you. God, would you make us more aware of that so that we can really share that living water, that water that we drink from and never thirst again because you satisfy us, you fulfill us, and nothing else does. So for that, we, we give you praise and we thank you for your grace. And we pray for those around us who need you. May your spirit work continue to work in their hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're so glad you tuned in today. If you like this video, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and share it with anyone you think could benefit. We're excited about all the content we have coming up and can't wait for you to see it. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss out. And if you're curious about LaCroix or if you're looking to take the next step on your journey with Jesus, check out lacroixchurch.org. We hope to see you again soon.